All right, welcome back to Healthspan. This is part four of The Cancer Code by Dr. Jason Fung. In this episode, I will be discussing nutrition and cancer, as well as the different nutrient sensors. So in 1981, there were two epidemiologists by the name of Richard Dahl and Richard Pito, who were asked to estimate the known root causes of cancer. And their 117-page landmark document was updated in 2015, and overall, researchers agreed that the original estimates would generally hold true for 35 years. So their estimates were tobacco, 35%, diet, 30%, occupational, 20%, infection, 10%, and other, 5%. Now, tobacco, which again was at 35%, was and still is the most important contributor to cancer. But dietary factors, including obesity and inactivity, are very close. So remember I said 30%. Tobacco, 35%. Dietary, 30%. So it was clear that the link between diet and cancer was a singularly, singularly important one. But the question remained, what specific dietary factor is responsible for cancer? Was it some sort of vitamin deficiency? Were we lacking some crucial protective factor? Was the problem too much of something in the diet? Was the problem not enough in the diet? So there was a lot of questions to be asked. So let's begin with this dietary fiber hypothesis. So in 1973, there was an Irish surgeon, his name was Dennis Burkett, who said that a number of diseases of major importance are characteristics of modern Western civilizations. These diseases, which are noticeably absent in African populations, Following traditional lifestyle included heart disease, obesity, type 2 diabetes, osteoporosis, and certain types of cancers. Colorectal cancer, so common in the West, was virtually unknown in the African uh, populations, which Burkett was treating. However, native Africans adopting a Western lifestyle suffered increased rate of colorectal cancers, so it was simply not a genetic problem. Diet was the main suspect, but what particular part of the diet was the culprit? So again, we're going to be looking at this dietary fiber hypothesis. So early studies on precancerous lesions of the colon known as adenomas or polyps were not very encouraging for this type of like dietary fiber hypothesis. So the hypothesis kind of goes that dietary fiber adds bulk to the stool and helps you have more regular bowel movements, which kind of clears out uh, the intestinal system and prevents decaying and putrefaction of food in your colon, which might be carcinogenic. So we're adding bulk to the stool, and we're having regular bowel movements, and we're kind of like cleansing our bowel. But by 1999, the Nurses Health Study, which was a 16-year study involving more than 16,000 women, found that a high-fiber diet did not reduce the risk of precancerous adenomas. Okay, so how about dietary fat? So if you are familiar with uh, macronutrients and have known the history of macronutrients, there was a major player in the role of dietary fat. His name was Dr. Ansel Keys. So Dr. Ansel Keys was a prominent nutrition researcher who pointed to dietary fat as the villain causing heart disease. But the anti-fat crusade didn't stop at heart disease. People thought dietary fat was the cause of like 
everything, obesity, high cholesterol, heart disease. And they thought, oh, if, if fat causes all of this stuff, it must cause cancer as well. But still, nobody had any idea of how dietary fat caused cancer. So in 1991, there was a Women's Health Initiative, um, the Women's Health Initiative, which was an enormous randomized control trial with 50,000 women and over eight years, put it to the test. So does this dietary fat actually cause cancer? They tested that dietary fat caused not only weight gain and heart attacks, but also breast cancer. So did this strict, so they separated the woman into kind of two main groups. One group of women instructed to follow their usual diet, and the other was instructed to reduce their dietary fat to 20% of calories and increase their in intake of grain, vegetables, and fruits. So did this strict diet reduce the rate of heart disease, obesity, and cancer? And the answer is no, not even close. So the study was finally published in 2007, and it showed that there were no benefit for heart disease and no benefit for obesity and no benefit for cancer in if people actually reduce their dietary fat. So it, it's not a problem with too much fat. It's not a problem with not enough fiber in the diet. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and move to um, obesity, which, as you will find out, is the problem with all this, is the problem uh, that is causing cancer. So the Cancer Prevention Study, which was a large cohort study in 1982, had 1 million uh, enrolled participants. Now, these participants were averaged age of 57, and they were healthy and free of any detectable cancer at the beginning of the study. And every two years, they were tracked to see who had died and why. And in 2003, the data researched, or the, 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 the data reached uh, a novel and stomach uh, churning conclusion, which was obesity, already a well-known risk factor for diabetes, heart disease, and stroke, also significantly raised the risk of cancer. So again, they discovered this in 2003, obesity not only causing diabetes, heart disease, and stroke, but increased the risk of cancer as well. Now specifically, we're talking about breast, colorectal, liver, endometrial, esophageal, and kidney cancer. And even mild weight gain is associated with increased risk of cancer cancer. So adult weight gain of only 5 kilograms, which is about 11 pounds, increases the risk of breast cancer by 11%, ovarian cancer by 13%, and colon cancer by 9%. Being overweight or obese almost doubled the risk of cancers of the esophagus, liver, and kidneys, and increased the colorectal cancer risk by about 30%. So we're seeing almost this direct correlation between someone who is obese and the development of cancer. So if weight gain increases cancer risk, does weight loss lower cancer risk? So in, 19, in the 1940s, there was a doctor by the name of Dr. Albert Tannebaum, who was the former president of the American Association for Cancer Research, who discovered that astoundingly, carbohydrate restriction alone in mice provided greater protection against cancer than overall calorie restriction. And he concluded that Tumor formation is dependent on the composition of the diet, as well as the degree of caloric restriction. And in the nurse's health study, women who lost 10 kilograms or more after menopause and kept the weight off lowered the risk of breast cancer by an astounding 
So obesity clearly increases the risk of cancer. Obesity also clearly increases the risk of type 2 diabetes. So what is the link here between obesity, cancer, and diabetes? And the answer is insulin. So for the next couple of moments, I'm going to be discussing insulin and how it connects obesity, cancer, and diabetes. So there is this close association of obesity, diabetes, and cancer. And we know that obesity is caused by hyperinsulinemia, which is too much insulin in the blood. We know type 2 diabetes is also caused by hyperinsulinemia. And you can read the cancer code uh, also by Dr. Jason Fung. And I, I did a podcast of that as well, which you can go over. But we know that hyperinsulinemia causes both obesity as well as type 2 diabetes. So is cancer also a disease of hyperinsulinemia? So let's take a dive. The cancer-provoking potential of insulin was noted as early as 1964. In lab cultures, normal breast cells were incubated with insulin, um, and these cancer breast, breast cancer cells proliferated so much that they actually resembled cancer cells. And growing, growing breast cancer cells in the lab actually required a lot of insulin. And this is an interesting observation because normal breast cells don't really need insulin. Yet breast cancer cells can't live without insulin. So this is very similar to other cells as well, like colorectal cancer cells, pancreatic cells, lung, kidney uh, cancer cells as well. They were acquiring insulin for growth. Now, why is this exactly? So why does breast cancer thrive on insulin so well? Well, in a study, it showed that breast cancer cells express six times the level of insulin receptors compared to normal breast cells. So these cancer cells are actually expressing insulin receptors, and insulin is the thing that is causing them to grow, 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 and proliferate. So we know insulin increases the risk of cancer. And data from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey database from 1999 to 2010 suggests that high insulin levels more than double the risk of cancer regardless of weight status. And in the United Kingdom's uh, general practice research database from 2000 to 2010, insulin treatment increases the risk of cancer by 44% compared to metformin. There was also another study as well. Data from the province of uh, Saskatchewan, Canada confirmed that Newly diagnosed diabetics starting, starting treatment with insulin had a 90% higher risk of cancer compared to those who were taking metformin. So I listed off a bunch of studies, but if there's one thing to remember is that more insulin equals more cancer. Why? Because of these cancer cells expressing more of these insulin receptors. And I'm going to get into more reasons of why and how this actually occurs. So why is insulin so important for cancer progression? In in a single word, Jason Fung puts, is that it is everything. More insulin is everything. And the the nutrient sensor insulin is also a highly potent growth factor, which is the main reason why insulin is is driving such a proliferation of these cancer cells. So our understanding of insulin's surprising link to cancer began in 1985, and thanks to the help of Dr. Lewis Cantley. And he was the one who discovered a pathway called the PI3 kinase pathway. 
So what changed this discovery from a minor biochemical curiosity to a game-changing medical breakthrough was the key role that PI3 kinase played in cancer. So remember, PI3 kinase is just the signaling pathway that occurs uh, in cells. And experiments in the late 1980s found that cancer-causing viruses often activate PI3 kinase to levels that are 100 times those in normal cells. So unexpectedly, PI3 kinase turned out to be one of the most significant oncogenes uh, in human cancer. Now, high PI3 kinase levels increases the cell growth and promotes cancer. So the next logical question is, what is stimulating PI3 kinase? And as I mentioned already, the answer is insulin. So insulin is actually stimulating this PI3 kinase and causing cells to grow, grow, grow. Now, when we eat, insulin and PI3 kinase increase, which redirects an organism's priority towards growth. Now, I'm going to get to nutrient sensors in, a, in just a second. But remember, when we eat, insulin and PI3 kinase increase. They go up and it causes the cell to grow. When we don't eat, insulin and PI3 kinase falls and redirects the organism's priority towards cellular repair and maintenance. So PI3 kinase provides this vital link between the nutrient sensing and the growth pathways. Insulin, in other words, stimulates cell growth, which was an obvious implication for cancers. So insulin through PI3 kinase ultimately ends up activating mTOR, which I'm gonna speak about in just a second. And the mTOR pathway is the ultimate decider of whether a cell is going to grow and proliferate or whether it's not going to. So all in all, obesity and type 2 diabetes, which are the prototypical diseases of hyperinsulinemia, significantly increase the risk of cancer. We had finally started to understand that aspects of the diet that are most influential for cancer. It, was, it wasn't fiber, it wasn't dietary fat, it wasn't from not enough vitamins, it was the nutrient sensor insulin. So insulin, we know now, is the culprit. And I mentioned mTOR, and I'm going to finish off by discussing these different nutrient sensors. And I had spoken about mTOR at great length in Healthspan, which is the book by David Sinclair. So if you want to hear about the history of, of you know, rapamycin, mTOR, the discovery, David Sabatini... Sir and Seagal, you can refer to that podcast. Uh, I won't go into great detail. But we know mTOR, which is the mechanistic target of rapamycin, is kind of like the master uh, signal to tell a cell to grow. So insulin, PI3 kinase, those are all upstream. mTOR is the final decider. So what does mTOR do? So the mTOR pathway, as Jason Funk puts, functions like a central command station for evaluating multiple sources of information before deciding whether to proceed with cell growth. So what are some of these key sources of information that are coming in to mTOR? Well, amino acids from our diet, insulin, oxygen, and glucose. These are kind of like the main signals to mTOR to tell a cell to activate protein synthesis and grow and proliferate. Now, interestingly, the drug rapamycin blocks mTOR, which in turn stops cell growth. And it also acts as an antifungal and an immunosuppressant as well. Um, but something interesting with rapamycin was discovered. 
rapamycin, again, the inhibitor of mTOR, it actually suppressed our immune system, but it decreased our risk of cancer. Now, the pathway mTOR is so deeply embedded in the growth decision of normal human cells that aberrations of mTOR are estimated to occur in about 70% of cancers. So, mutations in important cancer-causing genes like PI3 kinase, AKT, RAS, RAF, P10, NF1, and APC all work through their effect on mTOR. So all those letters I just said, those are all cancer-causing genes or oncogenes. PI3 kinase, AKT, P10, APC, RAS, RAF. These are all oncogenes that are promoting cancer. And they all work their effect through mTOR. So to make things more simple, we have too much insulin, too much amino acids, too much glucose, we're activating too much mTOR. Too much mTOR, too much cell growth and proliferation leading to cancer. Now that's a very simplistic way to put it, but that's in essence what's going on in our body when we're exposing ourselves to too much of these sensors. So he also goes into AMP kinase, but I'm going to cut it short here. And I'm going to focus, just end it here. And in the next episode, I'll be focusing on metastasis. But for now, I hope you enjoy this podcast. I hope you learn something about nutrition and cancer and why obesity, type 2 diabetes, and cancer all kind of go together and understand that the central link to all these is hyperinsulinemia. So if we can find ways to decrease our insulin in our body and in our blood, we know we can uh, kind of stop cancer from growing in our bodies. Um, Long story short. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Hope you tune in next week for, um, I guess, part five of The Cancer Code by Dr. Jason Fung. So thank you for listening.